would invite you to turn in your Bibles again to the book of 2 Corinthians. And uh, this morning we're going to be looking at chapter 12. Probably one of the most well-known sections of the letter of Paul to the Corinthians, the second letter. Uh, This is the one in which Paul relates the visions and revelations that were given. At first he doesn't tell us who it's concerned. He speaks in the third person. But it soon becomes apparent he's talking about himself and look at perhaps why he did that. And then uh, he talks about um, the fact that these revelations that God gave to him were the sort of things in their surpassing greatness that required God to humble him. God knows ways to humble his servants. And an affliction was given to Paul, that messenger of Satan, he calls it, that thorn in the flesh. Uh, that he pleads with God to remove, but um, the response that God gives is certainly well known. It's found its way into coffee cups and (laughs) bumper stickers. My grace is sufficient for you. Um, So again, this is a very, very well-known passage, but uh, it has complexities in it. It has certain things that are a bit uh, confusing, and so um, it will take a little bit of time to try to put the thing into its proper perspective. Again, Paul is um, coming head-on against the troublemakers in Corinth, uh, those people who had settled amongst the church there and viewed them, their mission uh, to undermine Paul, to undermine Paul's influence. And Paul speaks of them being uh, put up with, even though they came and they brought another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit. And uh, Paul um, is looking to combat them by using a bit of their own medicine, because these are people that um, they gloried in appearances, he says in chapter 5. They boasted in um, their relative easy lives, their relative uh, exemption from persecution. Uh, They came perhaps from the Jerusalem church. They came perhaps and gave their credentials. We were sent by the apostles in the Jerusalem church, the the mother church, and uh, we are approved of of them. Whether that's true or not, whether the apostles in Jerusalem knew what sort of things these people would be up to, uh, again, these are things we don't know about, only that they were causing trouble, and Paul is concerned to... um, address them in a way that uh, he is going to engage in what he terms foolishness, a a boasting that's not appropriate for us to engage in. Who's who's the best pastor in New York State? I hope you all say me. (laughs) But if you did, how silly that would be. I mean, isn't that silly to... uh, Who's the best pastor? <laughs> Who's the best reform? We had a bunch of Reformed Baptist pastors that met up in Dogeville. Which one of them is the best? Who's number one? And kind of the thing that the uh, apostles were engaging in when Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's going to the cross. He's telling about the sufferings that await him. And they're arguing one, with one another which one of them was the greatest. I mean, it's, uh, it's absurd. It's absurd. Um, especially in the face of uh, what our Lord is endeavoring to do. Uh, give his life a ransom for many, as he's going to say. Who's the greatest one am- uh, among you? The one who's willing to give up, give up his life. The one who's willing to die. That's the greatest in the kingdom of God. It's not the people that lorded over one another. It's uh, the people that serve one another. I'm among you as one who serves our Lord Jesus says. So uh, Paul's boasting is boasting in weakness because uh, 
That's where the power of the gospel comes from. Uh, Jesus died in weakness, raised in power. But it was in the weakness of his death that reconciliation was made with God. Our sins are expunged, they're paid for, they're purged. And um, God brings the blessings of the new covenant through uh, a work of weakness, that which in the eyes of the the Greeks was... um, Foolishness to the Jew it was a stumbling block. It's only to those that are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God. To everyone else, it doesn't simply simply doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I think it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because they really don't see the whole picture. They don't see what, all that God has done in Christ. And also, they're so filled with themselves, so filled with their pride, so filled with their selfish ambitions, so filled with their ability to come to the Corinthians and say, we're number one. We're the best pastors here in, uh, in Corinth. Uh, in all of Achaia, we're the, we're, we're, the, we're the stars. We're the people that you need to be, need to be looking to. And um, Paul uh, says, well, okay, uh, bear with me in a little foolishness. Uh, because my, my ambitions for you is to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And I, my, my fear is you're moving away from Christ. You're, you're hearing the voice of the devil that once spoke to Eve in the garden, speaking through these people undermining um, your faith in, in, if not Jesus directly, yet Jesus' apostle who was sent to you and brings to you the word of God. And you preferring these people that uh, boast in themselves. And Paul's boasting is in his sufferings, his hardships, the things that he endured for the sake of the gospel. And again, I can't help but think of the book of Jeremiah is seeing the parallel between Jeremiah and all of the sufferings that he endured, page after page after page of lamentation, page after page of complaint. And again, the book of Job is another example of that. I think I mentioned this all last week. The Psalms as well, being a book not of praise songs, but of lamentations, mostly of personal lamentations, uh, lamentations about sin, lamentations about enemies, how my enemies increased. That's the whole uh, flavor of the New Testament. God's people are a people in the midst of conflict. And God's word is a word to people in conflict to help them guide their way, to help them be able to make their way in a world that uh, brings trouble and trauma. I think I used the expression in last week's uh, message, an old song by a group I won't even mention, but there's no way to delay the trouble coming every day. That's simply, uh, that's become my anthem because trouble is always at hand in a world that's fallen. Um, So Paul's continuing this, uh, boasting of the things that show his weakness. Uh, He's uh, ended chapter 11 with that uh, very, you know, humanly speaking, that's a shameful scene of being lowered down a wall in a basket. Not, uh, that's not, uh, uh, making assault on the wall in order to you know, be a hero in, in, in combat and battle to take the city. But no, the city's rejected him. The leaders of the city have rejected him. The governor under King Aretas, guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. And he escaped um, through the wall in a basket. Uh, humbling, isn't it? Very much so. And Paul says, I must go on boasting. And... Um, He says, though there's nothing to be gained by it in in verse 1 of chapter 12, I'll go on. And what is he going to go on to? Was he going to this matter of visions and revelations of the Lord Jesus? Now, we don't know whether the 
false apostles or the super apostles, whatever you want to call them, his opponents at Corinth, might have come amongst the Corinthians with uh, claims to visions and revelations. Likely they did. Like they said, we saw Jesus or heard Jesus or had a vision of Jesus and we have this revelation from God and Christ and here's what it is. And you know, Paul is, some, is somebody who doesn't uh, have access to the knowledge that we have. They may have been claiming some special knowledge for themselves that came as a result of visionary experiences. And Paul wants to be clear that he's not behind them in this at all. Uh, at all. He is one well experienced with the reality of the appearances of Jesus. His very conversion came on the road to Damascus when um, he saw Jesus and uh, heard the voice of Jesus and uh, was called into the apostolate by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now whether this experience he's speaking about is that experience uh, on the road to Damascus is not likely. Maybe it was a subsequent experience. Paul had lots of them. He had a vision when he came to Corinth. Remember that in Acts chapter 18 where the Lord came to him and said, Fear not, Paul. Uh, Nobody's going to set upon you to hurt you because I have many people in this city. I'm here to protect you. Jesus came to him in a vision. And uh, he received visions from the Lord. And it, it was for him that was something, I don't know how common, but somewhat common. But he speaks of one that um, took place 14 years ago. 14 years ago from the time of this letter. Um, now he speaks in the third person. He didn't say, this happened to me. He says, I know a man in Christ. And again, very likely because he's... He's not going to use this in the way these other people did to affirm his own authority, although he could have, but to just show what they're saying to you about my authority being less than theirs because they've had these visions. Um, it just won't wash because I, whatever visions they've had, I've had more. And whatever visions they've had, I've had ones that are clear and certain and the author was Jesus and not just some... Um, experience they may claim may lay claim to. Who knows what the origin of their experiences were? Again, Satan uh, transforms himself as to an angel of light. Maybe it was some kind of a satanic thing. These. Who knows? Who knows? And Paul knows. And Paul knows. Uh, uh, but this man is in Christ, so here's a believer. And generally speaking, Jesus doesn't appear to unbelievers in this way. Uh, this is a revelatory vision given to one of his servants. Um, and he was caught up into the third heaven. Now, some comment needs to be said about the, the three heavens. Um, again, a lot of people say, well, the Bible is a book that was written in a pre-scientific age. And in a pre-scientific age, people's conception of reality was that there were there's a three-story universe. Um, the three-story universe comprised uh, three heavens. You have the... You know, and again, we refer to heaven in the light of... Um, what we call the terrestrial heaven. That's the heaven we see during the daytime. We look up in the clouds in the heavens, and those clouds in the heavens are in uh, the terrestrial heavens. And then there is a heaven you see when nighttime comes, when you can actually look and see the stars that you can't see during the day, and you see all the things beyond the clouds. And that's the celestial heavens, the starry heavens. Starry, starry night, right? The starry heavens. And then there is the heaven that is the abode of God. God's space. And all of them are called heaven. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this speaks of created reality. 
That speaks of the terrestrial heavens. The, the, oh, the firmament was placed on the second day, I believe it was, uh, between the earth and the heavens. Um, so this idea of there being three, uh, a, th- a threefold uh, universe, uh, people say, well, that was just something that was the... Um, you know, the notion so that when astronauts began to go out into space, so we're going to debunk this Christianity thing because if there's this three story universe and we could pierce our way through not only the, um, the um, heavens that you see during the daytime and the heavens that you see during the nighttime, but up way beyond and look into the Hubble telescope or this latest telescope. I don't remember the name of it. What is it? The web. The web. Okay, okay, the Webb telescope, and just the amazing things they're coming back with in terms of just <laughs> the wonders and beauty and awesomeness and majesty of the created universe. But where's, where's God? Where's God? And the Russian, Russian uh, cosmonauts would uh, make that report. We, we've been out here, we, we were looking, and we cannot find God. So um, when he went up into this third heaven, Again, it is speaking about the heaven uh, which is considered to be God's space. The distinction between the created world, the created heavens, the created heavens and the earth, the uh, um, celestial heavens, the terrestrial heavens, the things you see in the daytime, the things you see in the nighttime, the things you can see with the Hubble or the Webb telescope, and that's all created reality. God's in a reality that's other. But the reality is that uh, the direction of the uh, heaven that is the abode of God uh, more than often is considered in the scriptures in a direction that's above us, or beyond us. Because again, how else can you ever express the notion of transcendence? You won't say beneath your feet, you say you know, beyond our ability to conceive. And it's metaphoric how the Bible views it. Again, we see Jesus taken up into a cloud, and it says he ascended into the right hand of the majesty on high. But it doesn't say that that cloud went through first the terrestrial heavens, and then it made its way, you know, with an unmanned spacecraft, or an unspacecraft man, I guess it would be. There's an unspacecraft man that's making his way not only through the terrestrial heavens, but the celestial heavens, and somewhere beyond, where, uh, you know, no human being could live. You're going to die, but yet here's, I mean, it's, and the people laugh at that. It just says they went out of his sight. They went out of their sight. The point is, Jesus went into a place that we do not see. And we cannot define where it is in the universe of God. It's always amazed me is that people make all kinds of speculations about alternate universes. They'll talk about metaverses. They'll talk about um, all these things. But the idea of a special place of divine abode that we cannot access with our eyes. We can't behold it with our senses. Because the God we worship and serve is the invisible God, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. And he's in a place where there's no access with the human eye to that place of his enthronement or his power or his uh, special dwelling. But again, even that special dwelling, it's even that the heavens that the Bible says God entered, where Jesus entered into to appear in the presence of God for us, it doesn't limit God to that place, wherever it is in the universe of God. Because God not only has a special presence that was upon earth in the, t- in the tabernacle, later on in the temple, certainly in Jesus, God's, God's presence came to earth. God's presence was manifest in this world. But God is also has a, has a property or an, an attribute of omnipresence. 
His presence is everywhere. There's, he's not a God of limitation. He's not a God that's limited in space or in time or in any, any way of human measurement. Um, so the idea of a third heaven, it may sound like this is just simply a pre-scientific world where all kinds of imaginative, superstitious notions were entertained by people, but it's really not. It's really Paul saying he had a vision. And, and the fact that the vision that he had of in third heaven in the special dwelling place of God. Not saying I went through the terrestrial heavens, into the celestial heavens, into some way beyond, into some third story place in the universe. He's not saying that. In fact, he's not even sure if this experience he had even involved his own body. He said, whether in, in the body or out of the body, I do not know. Whether my body was brought into that place or was just simply a vision. Something I saw. And I had, you know, I had sensibilities of it. I saw it. But I didn't even know that my body was all there. <laughs> some ability to see it. But it could have been something like a, a trance. It could have been something like a dream. It could have been something like some reality that came before my, my eyes. And I didn't know where I was. I couldn't, I, I, don't, I don't know the technicality of, of, of how it was done or even give a full explanation of what I saw. Because with the explanation he says of what he, what he, what he saw was um, something you don't utter. It's something not lawful for people to utter. A man may not utter. I heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. in the place in which he he was caught up into is interesting because it's called paradise paradise now my understanding of paradise is that paradise is a loan word from I believe it's a Persian word um, and that Persian word meant a garden it meant a garden so it's the Persian word for garden it's, it's the picture of the place of restoration, the place where all things are restored to the divine intent that he had at creation when God made the world without, without sin, without curse, uh, a world in which man was placed in a garden of delight to walk with God and to dwell with God. And this place of dwelling with God is like a garden Kings in the ancient world had gardens, some of them famous gardens, the hanging gardens of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Well, the creator has a garden. He has a place for human abode where we may dwell with him as Adam did in the Garden of Eden, walking with God in the cool of the day. Um, A place of communion with him. That's where Paul saw this vision caught up into the third heaven. And so I got this vision. I considered this vision. I thought about this vision. I started to write about this vision. I got a contract to write a book about my experiences in heaven. I'm sorry. Paul is not a 20th century or 21st century man. He says, no, no. You don't publish these things. You don't talk about these things. You don't write books about these things. All the people that say they went into heaven or they went into hell or whatever they think they had visions of, Paul is more moderate. Paul is more modest about his own experiences. And he's not about to publish it. He's not about to write great books about it. 
Paul says on behalf of this man who had this kind of visionary experience, he says, I will boast in verse 5. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. I mean, yeah, this was me he's talking about. But he doesn't want to be known for that. Paul doesn't want his reputation to be made in the church because he's going around having visions of paradise, taken up into the third heaven, seeing things unlawful to be uttered. That's not his qualifications as an apostle. That's something that was true of him, and it's something he could have boasted in, but he's not like these other guys looking to boast about all of their coated many color experiences to validate their ministries and to be impressive in the sight of other people. Paul says, if you're going to see me in many legitimacy as an apostle, think of the hardships, think of the beatings, think of the imprisonments, think of the shipwrecks, think of all the things he spoke about in chapter 11. I will not boast of these things, only my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, he says in verse 6, so that no one will think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Paul says, judge me on the basis of what you see, what you hear, what you know to be true about me. You Corinthians have a special advantage in this whole regard because I was there for 18 months laboring in your midst. And I've had all these correspondences with you and visits to you. And some have been painful and some have been hard. But nonetheless, you have seen me in a whole host of situations, experiences. And judge what kind of a person I am by those things. You've seen me during happy times. You've seen me through troublesome times. You've seen me when pressure was on. You see what kind of a person I am. Judge me on the basis of the things that you see. And again, it's not just, well, think back to what I once was. No, think about what you know about me through the years and what I still am. And I know people that think, well, if someone was a great uh, faithful minister 20 years ago, he might have uh, slackened off and he's pilfering from the church funds and he's uh, carrying on with the church secretary. But I mean, come on now, he's going through, you know, male menopause he's going through some change of life experience and um, that's I don't know if that's a proper thing to say I guess that's a medical term at least I've heard it before but the sort of thing that uh, what, what do they call it when men were going through those things back in the 80s they had a term for that Midlife crisis, thank you. Going through a midlife crisis. So, you know, give the guy a break. Give No, you don't give the guy a break. You know, he may once have been, uh, uh, you know, elder material, but if he's not walking the walk, he can't be an elder. <laughs> so, um, don't judge him on the basis of what he was. Judge him on the basis of who he is. And Paul says, judge me on the basis of what you see in me, what you hear from me. I love the basis of the fact I told you that I have this great vision of uh, paradise and this great, I mean, it's a true reality. Paul had these visions. He saw the Lord. He saw him on the road to Damascus. He saw him in other visions that the scriptures tell us he's received. But yet this was an amazing vision that he had. And this could affect him personally very deeply. I mean, if you, if you are so privileged to enter in to something of the mysteries of the glory of God in heaven. And you've been brought into the throne room of God. Um, again, the reality is that that's a humbling experience in Scripture. I mean, Isaiah was in the throne room of God and said, Woe is me, I'm, I'm, I'm undone. 
a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It was a withering experience. But yet, and there's nothing, at least in what God showed Paul, that caused him to wither. Um, this was an amazing thing. This is a glorious thing. Glorious things that are uh, too, too wonderful, too uh, surpassingly wonderful that you don't talk about it, you don't write about it. It's something that the, the heart treasures up in one's relationship before the living God. But there is a temptation that God knew Paul would experience having these revelations. And so in verse 7, he says, So to keep me from becoming proud or conceited or haughty, or thinking more of myself than I ought to think because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. And again, he doesn't tell us about it. Don't you want to know what in the world did you see, Paul? What was it like? Tell, yeah, that's our own um, inquisitiveness. That's our own um, need to know or desire to know. But Paul says, no, no. You don't need to know this because whatever it was that Paul saw, it's nothing in comparison to what he knew he would see when he entered into the presence of God, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. But this was something that, uh, again, it's amazing and wonderful not to be talked about, um, but yet something that could well have led to pride. And so be, to keep him from pride, God knows how to keep his servants humble. You, know, you don't have to do that. You, know, you don't have to do that. You don't, you don't have to say, you know, it's my mission in life to make Pastor Gordon humble. You know, we, we think he may be just too proud. Um, so what, what is my gift? What is my, my work in the church? Well, I'm here to make the pastor humble. I think there are people that have actually thought that was their job, to make me humble. Now, yeah, first of all, look to yourself in terms of where pride may be in your own heart before you're so quick to pass judgment upon another person to say, well, that person is unusually tempted to pride. And some people actually think, because I study a lot and I know a lot about God's word, that pride is the consequence of that. And my experience, to tell you the truth, folks, is the exact opposite. Because the more I learn, the more I know what I don't know. You know, I may be able to come here on Sunday and tell you a lot about what I know that uh, you didn't know before, and you might say, well, that guy is really tempted to pride. But you don't have a clue what I do in the study trying to work through writings that, man, what planet does this guy live on that he has so much in the way of insight and understanding of things that I don't have a clue about? It's kind of like, you know, when reading some of those things about uh, the, tri- the medical trials for COVID. I tried to do that when there was all that confusion about... So I read some of those things, and I just walked away and said, well, I'm glad somebody understands what these reports mean, because I sure don't. I mean, uh, maybe 5% I understood of that. I maybe understand a, few, a little bit more in terms of theological concerns, but I just know, just by le- learning what I don't know. And that's usually, I think, what happens when we endeavor to pursue any area of study. There's always so much more that you don't know than you do know. So, again, I don't see that there's ground there for private. Anyway, um, a revelation like this, God saw, was for Paul a problem of pride. And again, God has his ways to humble his people. And I think it's, for me, it's always been the church has been small all my, all my ministry life. If it had been big, I, I, would have, I would have been in trouble. 
far more than learning, I think popularity would have gotten to me. So I'm thankful. Nobody knows me. <laughs> I'm thankful. Um, that's something God has used, I think, in my life uh, to help me out with some of my own temptations towards pride. Anyway, God knows the way he, he can keep his, his people humble. And in Paul's case, there was some sort of a physical affliction that was visited upon him. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. A thorn was given to me in the flesh. Now, again, it's metaphoric. It's not literal. It wasn't that he had a contact with a rose bush and a thorn entered into his finger or something like that. Uh, you can pull out the thorn, please, Paul, and move on with your life. But uh, here's something that he couldn't, he couldn't get rid of. Here's something that uh, some people say was uh, his eye problem, that they related to something he has said in the Galatian letter. Some say it was epilepsy, and of course they looked at, at Paul's visions as a result of that. Some people say one thing after another, after another, after another. And the point is, you just don't know. Paul doesn't say. He doesn't tell us anything more about his thorn than he tells us about his vision in paradise. Again, Paul was, Paul was just not the, the, the sort of person that was just looking to, you know, tell everybody all the news that's fit to print. He just wasn't going to do that. He wasn't the New York Times. He wasn't just about to blurt everything out. He doesn't tell us about the nature of the thorn, but it was something that was in his body. It was something that afflicted him bodily, and it was something that did not get healed. And again, you have to grapple with the reality that though the Bible is filled with healings, filled with wonderful displays of God's compassion and mercy to sick and needy people, yet also there are instances that abound of sick people that never got healed. And here's Paul having some form of a sickness that he did not get healed from, and he prayed three times, pleads with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And again, he doesn't say the content of the pleas, but you can figure it out, probably. Lord, I can't serve you with this. Lord, this is hindering my ministry. Lord, this is something that uh, I don't know how to cope with. This is something of so great a difficulty that, Lord, I need it removed if I'm going to continue on. And on and on and on. He probably went three times. Persistent prayer. So the problem with you, you don't get your prayers answered, but you're not persistent. When Paul's persistent, he's, he's sieging, he's uh, uh, sieging, the, see, yeah, he's making siege of the throne of grace. He's coming into the presence of God with his concerns, with his pleas. Lord, I need to be rid of this. It needs to leave me. What is the response Paul gets? Paul, I know better. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And again, you can't live the Christian life very long without seeing areas in your own life where that's been true. Where when you felt yourself just filled with strength, you were just primed for a fall. But when God, in one way or another, came to humble you, um, your spiritual life began to take off. Or your usefulness began to be um, increased. Now, we saw the story that um, early on in the ministry, when we met up at, in the town, um, there was one Mother's Day. That, uh, that was during the time when 
I'm told, I was basically told if you can get along in the ministry when Mother's Day comes, preach to the mothers. When Father's Day comes, preach to the fathers. So I've sort of got, gotten tired of that through the years. Maybe I need to preach a Mother's Day sermon. Maybe I'll put that on my calendar and make it a resolution for next year. But it's been a long time since I, I did. But back in the day, I did it all the time. In fact, there was a pastor down in Jersey. Every Mother's Day, he would ask me to come and preach for him. And there I was preaching another Mother's Day sermon for someone else that didn't want to preach a Mother's Day sermon. Anyway, this particular Sunday, preaching this Mother's Day sermon, I just felt terrible. I felt like I was flubbing every sentence. I couldn't, I couldn't complete my sentences. There was no agreement in the things that I was saying. It was just appalling. And I was listening to myself saying, I can't wait till you shut up. <laughs> and finally get to the end of the message. I shut up. I had prayer. And I remember walking to the, to the room, the back of the room, and I said, Lord, i got to greet these people. And I just feel like miserable. And um, I just don't know how I'm going to do this. And uh, as people were walking out of the, coming out of the room, uh, Marge Morton approached me. And uh, dear Marge, uh, I think she'd been coming for a little while regularly. Um, and she said, Pastor, this is why I decided to come to this church. <laughs> and I learned a lesson from that. In the midst of my own felt weakness, God spoke something meaningful and significant to someone in the congregation. And so what would I rather have? A sermon where I felt happy about what I was doing or have a sermon where I didn't feel happy at all but other people were getting blessed. So my own enjoyment is no criteria of the blessing of God. My own sense, well, I, I'm on top of things. I, I'm really on the top of, top of my game. I'm really <laughs> preaching this sermon well. That should not be the criteria of what God's doing. You never know. In the midst of your own felt weakness, how God can work. And then, of course, uh, we've gone through experiences where, uh, you know, the, I, I, I tell people this, that when I first began in the ministry for the first um, nine years or so, there were times I didn't even want to go to church, particularly to come back in the evening. You know, I remember some of those times and just wrestling within myself. And saying, well, you know, people are expecting me to be there, so I guess i got to go. But I would have done anything else in the world. My wife will bear witness that I, I confessed that to her on more than one occasion. And then God did something that um, I guess I needed him to do. He put me out of the ministry for two years, two plus years. And having experienced uh, not being in the ministry, not having to go to church morning and evening, and the church would have continued, done, done it. No one was looking at me, no one was dependent upon me. When the Lord brought me back in the ministry, I've never experienced that thing again. I've never experienced that reluctance to come to church, not ever again. And again, it's the midst of, midst of weakness. We're, we, we hear the voice of God. We, we're teachable. We learn things in the midst of the troubles of life that we can never learn in any other way. Because we're just too fill, filled with ourselves to learn it. To learn it. It's in the school of affliction that God teaches us. It's one of the great areas in which um, we learn as God's people to grow as Christians in the midst of of suffering. And so Paul needed this thorn in the flesh. And he needed to learn that in the midst of this trial, 
to lean wholly and fully upon the grace of God. God's all-sufficient grace met him in the time of his weakness. And God's divine power is perfected in human weakness. But again, God's not going to, he's not going to enter into a competition with us as to who gets the credit. <laughs> you know, if it's a question, is, is God getting the credit or you're getting the credit? God every time is going to say, I'm not giving you the credit. I'm not only allowing you to take the credit. That's one of the real problems, I think, again, in the church today is people want the credit. And uh, again, back to, I think I've mentioned this even last week or the week before that Harry S. Truman made that famous statement, it's amazing what you can get done when nobody cares who gets the credit. (laughs) So, certainly God says, I'm the one to get the credit or to glory in him. And so Paul learned to glory in him. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. That's not disqualifying. Regardless of what these false apostles are saying about me, my weaknesses are not disqualifying. They're the things that validate my apostolic identity. They validate my apostolic work. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And there can be no confusion about this thing. As said back in I think it's chapter 4, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the honor should be not of, not of us, but of, but of God. It's God's honor that's at stake here. And so God humbles his servants and makes it very apparent that there were clay jars, clay vessels. They, it's, it's not them. It's, it's the gospel they bring. It's the truth that contained in them. It's, it's the power of God at work through that gospel. And so for the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Isn't that astounding? Again, you go back into chapter 11 and you read the whole list of the hardships he was through. You say, how in the world did you ever endure that, Paul? Here's the answer. Here's the answer. This is what made Paul tick. <laughs> it's his recognition that none of these things could separate him from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. In fact, he says in the Roman letter, and turn to Romans chapter 8. asked the question in verse 35 who shall separate us from the love of God shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword verse 37 no in all these things in distress in tribulation in persecution in famine in nakedness in danger in sword in all these things we are more than conquerors to him who loved us. Now, I don't know what it means to be more than a conqueror, but Paul says these are not hindrances. These are helps. And we don't tend to view it that way, and we should. We just don't have the perspective that James had when he said, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, different temptations. We have the exact opposite reaction than joy. Um, we don't see it as an opportunity to learn God's ways. 
we see it as just the end of all usefulness. We see it as doom and gloom. We see it as the end of the world. And um, we need to learn Paul's understanding of how God works in the lives of his children and how growth as believers comes in the midst of tribulation and persecution and nakedness and peril and sword. Now, along with the revelations that Paul received, which don't want to talk about, doesn't want to utter them, just people need to know God gave them to him from, right from the point of his calling. He was not without these revelations. And whatever these other people would be claiming that marks them out as apostles, um, I even more than they can only claim to these things if I choose to. But it's not the thing I want to mark me. It's not the thing that is the thing that validates my apostolic um, identity. And again, we live in a day when people talk about revelations, they talk about prophecies, they talk about visions, they talk about dreams, they talk about all manner of ways to come to know the Lord that very conveniently seems to bypass any sincere consideration of the scriptures. And you know, some of the people that lay claim to this new revelation that they claim that God gives them, I have to wonder why they get such gifts of revelation when they don't even bother to hear or to seek or to submit to all the things God has already said. (laughs) They're not grappling with all that God has said in Scripture. Where God has spoken, they just want a shortcut. We don't want to have to study the Scriptures. We don't want to have to search the Scriptures. We don't want to have to apply ourselves to the study of the Word of God or hearing the Word of God. We don't need a word-oriented religion. We want an experience-oriented religion where everything just gets short. We get a shortcut. We get a shortcut to know the mind and will of God. I don't think if God's going to give anybody revelation, it would have been, you know, great theologians who are really wrestling with the study of his word. But um, it seems that those people, except for one or two I can think of, totally claim to such revelations. But um, Paul goes on with with another statement about another thing that um, we grapple with in our day, along with revelations or gifts of... uh, Supernatural insight and understanding that uh, people lay claim to. They did in the first century, they do now. Um, But also other matters of the works of the miraculous. Um, And particularly verse 12. Let's read verse 11. He says, I've been a fool, you forced me to it. I've gone down this direction of foolish speaking, of boasting in my weakness. Not a place I wanted to go, but something I was compelled to go in because because of the way these false teachers have been uh, accusing me. I ought to have been commended by you. In other words, you ought to have been my defenders. I don't need to talk about this in this letter to you. If you had only did what you should have done, which was to um, commend me to these false teachers and not bear with them. You should just silence them and cast them out of the church. But you didn't do that, so you forced me to engage in this kind of discussion. For though I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing, that's what I see myself as nothing. Again, he speaks of he did more work than all the other apostles, and yet not I, but the grace of God that is it, was, was in me. Um, he didn't consider himself to be anything, but God to be everything. But he's not inferior with reference to these 
visions and dreams. And not only so, but there's even more. From verse 12, he says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. And Paul says, when I was among you, I did the work of an apostle, which even included the sign gifts, the gifts of powers, the gifts of wonders, the gifts of the miraculous, which was the special deposit of Jesus for the apostles in the New Testament. He calls them not the sign of a believer. He calls them the signs of an apostle. This is a validation, a proof of apostolic ministry. And again, you see it, Paul's doing it all along, saying here are the distinguishing marks of an apostle. I saw the Lord. I was called by the Lord. I'm an eyewitness of the resurrection. I have been gifted with revelatory insights and understandings. And I did these miraculous works in your midst. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Now, these signs were a big deal among the Corinthians. Again, you remember the first letter, when they took their so much uh, emphasis upon tongues. Uh, tongues was like the best thing going. We, we speak in tongues, and this is astounding. We have these languages that God has given to us, and they weren't thinking in terms of how gifts ought to function for the benefit of the body. They were all caught up with the sizzle, <laughs> all caught up with the, uh, the outward ostentatiousness of the gift of tongues. It was observable, it was seen, it was heard. It was something where people would come into the congregation, hear people speaking in tongues and say, you're mad. (laughs) You're a mad man. You're all caught up in this mad experience. We we don't get it. We don't get it. And Paul's saying how important it is that we speak in language that's understood for the benefit of other people. But again, in that church, he mentions a whole bunch of miraculous gifts that were given of words of knowledge and words of wisdom and revelatory words. He speaks of um, gifts of healing. He speaks of um, works of the miraculous um, as well as tongues and interpretation. The ninefold gifts of the Corinthian list. And he, he mentions those because the Corinthians were all absorbed with them, but they weren't considering that these were still gifts that ultimately were not to make you special. You didn't get these gifts to mark you out as some kind of a special vessel of the Lord so you could raise yourself head and shoulders above your brothers and sisters. These still were gifts, even these miraculous gifts, for the benefit of the body. That It's the Spirit of God that distributes these gifts as He sees fit. And it's for the building up of the body. Every member has its function. For what? For the purposes of the edification of the body. The strengthening and building up of the body of Christ. But these were people that were caught up in these things as if these, this was 
the mark of their own spirituality and the mark of their distinguishing, being distinguished of, uh, above others. But Paul says these are the marks of a true apostle. And you only got these gifts in this church at all because an apostle came among you. Again, I think of the book of Acts and its emphasis that these special gifts came as a result of the laying on of the hands of the apostles. That's how these gifts came to this people in Corinth. And so you know, they were just losing sight of their relationship with a true apostle who gave firm testimony of the reality of his apostleship in all these various ways. which at no point made him proud, and no point made him glory in anything other than the privilege he had to be dishonored for the honor of Christ, to be mistreated for the sake of the glory of his God and his King and the good of his people. Um, you were not less favored than all the other churches. He says in verse 13, except I didn't burden you. <laughs> I didn't take money from you. And he said, forgive me this wrong. You know, Paul does a little bit of irony, a little bit of sarcasm as he uh, looks to put the Corinthians um, in their place and to spur them to reality. Anyway, so we didn't get to the end of the chapter, but I hope what we looked at this morning was beneficial and helpful. Our time is gone. So God willing, we'll pick up from... Uh, that point and uh, God willing when I get back from Indiana we'll uh, seek to finish the remainder of the book of 2 Corinthians let's commit our thoughts to the Lord as we look to him in prayer Father we're thankful for the richness of your word we're thankful for the life of Paul we're thankful for his evident testimony that he could speak to in his own letters where the people knew what kind of a man he was and even if they were influenced in a wrong way by others who came in their midst, he could call them back to what they knew, what they saw, what they heard in this true apostle whom you gave to the church. We're thankful for his ministry. We're thankful for his letters. We're thankful even for the things we've learned this morning about how we can see in the face of the difficulties and trials and sufferings of this life an avenue of spiritual growth which would make no time, no experience, no moment in our lives as your people simply wasted. Lord, we pray we would benefit by all of your providences. You would sanctify all of the situations and circumstances of our lives for our good and for your glory. So we ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless your people as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen.